Uh, the Science Guy. Welcome to the Green Majority, CIUT 89.5 FM, your local community radio station. Harbinger Media Network podcast platforms. I am no longer willing to call this show a news hour because screw the news. <laughs> the news is bad. I mean, the news is bad. That's undeniable. And Stefan Hostetter is seething with things that he would desire to say, but he is keeping them unwholesomely within and not expressing those feelings. Uh, why does he have a radio show if not to boisterously broadcast his innermost his innermost intimations? One does not know, but one moves on nonetheless with one's task. <clears throat> and Lauren will be conducting an interview this this week with an individual whose name I do not know, nor do I understand even the content of that interview. <laughs> it's an interview with Alex Cool Fergus, who is the new national policy manager of Climate Action Network Canada. Um, and hopefully by the time the interview is over, you'll have a solid understanding of what's being covered in it because it's it's climate policy, basically. So it's it's a bit of a we frame the conversation as kind of like a back to school, back to parliament um, overview of some of the policies and regulations and pieces of legislation that are up for consideration over the next couple months um, and why they're important to pay to pay attention to, um, especially in light of the fact that I don't know. I feel like we're all kind of tacitly accepting that a federal election is going to happen in the next year. So some of these are policies that if they don't get pushed through this parliamentary term, there's a decent chance they might never be pushed through at all. Hey, see, the news is bad. I would say the the media, you know, doing its best. The news, though. No, 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 no. Everybody who even utters a syllable of information-based societal content Wow. Is wrong, is dirty. Wow. And does not have their priorities straight. Wow. And what I just wish is actually my my wishes are actually too grotesque to utter on the radio, so I will not utter those. They have to do with Stefan Hostetter. Great. Um who is just a dumpling of a man. Okay. Um just a, just a nice Nice ball of pork wrapped up in uh, soft dough and steamed to perfection. Dave, I'm gonna I'm gonna need you to start speaking more sense. It's real hot where I am, and most things aren't making sense already. I have what's something known as air conditioning. I don't know if that's what you have going on over there. No. Okay. Mama does not have air conditioning money. <laughs> Send help. <laughs> It's too hot in Ottawa. It's too hot, but it is a beautiful beautiful sunset in the dot. The sun is setting wonderfully through these these plains of mist. There are pinks, there are fuchsias, there are oranges, there are peaches, there are mauves. Shall we do some climate news? Let's do some climate news. Or it's not news because it's not news. It shouldn't be news. Because people should already know it. We're not reporters. I mean, it's information that has occurred. I just want listeners to know that I'm pretty sure the idea of us doing headlines was Dave's idea. <laughs> Excuse me? You did. Didn't you, did you bring the... this idea to the show? Wasn't this your touch? The whole reason we do news is is you. That was the only thing. Stefan was like, I need help with this show years ago. And I was like, I don't understand the content of their discussions. 
Therefore, the only help I can bring is to provide some sort of context for these opinions that are being thrown around. All right. So this, but to call, but to call it a news presentation <laughs> is utterly duplicitous. The fact is, the the listeners require some sort of information to ground the discussion that's happening, and if Stefan can't provide that, somebody must. So let's go to the context portion of the show. Context setting. Context setting. Yeah. I mean, if you guys just want to rant for an hour, I can leave. All right, I can get out of here because I don't. I don't need we, to be sweating in this crucible. Well, you already said you have wave air conditioning. We are. I've turned it off for the purposes <laughs> of the recording. All right, let's do the context setting. Ontario's housing minister Steve Clark and his chief of staff Ryan Amato have resigned since it's become clear that Doug Ford's government has been bribed into selling off protected land to developers. That's so, correct, right? I mean, it's close to correct. The to avoid libel charges, we should. Oh, it's clearly probably bribery. note. Oh my goodness! We should probably note to avoid libel charges uh, that the integrity commissioner didn't technically say the word bribe. Uh, oh what she God. said was that quote, or that's a quote, but what she said was that all but one of the fifteen sites removed from the green belt were suggested not by civil servants but by Clark's chief of staff, who was given packages at an industry event by two key developers, and that developers who had access to the top staffer wound up getting ninety two percent of the land that was removed so who's to say um but obviously this is huge news this is one of the big fights that is still ongoing here in Ontario in terms of the protected land in the Greenbelt. It's one of the more successful policies in terms of protecting wildlife and wild in, in wild spaces in the country that is being eroded at a very fast rate um, by th- these actions of this conservative government. And so the fact that we've seen some movement here is really key. Um, also, I just want to say that the Narwhal deserves a huge shout out uh, for the work that they've done in digging through this over the, over the past year, and that all of this goes to show the importance of the freedom of information requests and the ability for the press to get information from the government, which is something that has become harder and harder over the past few decades and something that no major party seems particularly interested in fixing, despite its desperate need to. But... That brings me very briefly to my favorite small piece of uh, additional context, which is that the new housing minister, uh, who was once accused of stealing $8,000 from his own mother, uh, has noted that even more land could be removed from the green belt in the coming months in his press conference that he had this week. So we're really going from a top... The new housing minister? The new housing minister. What do you mean by stole $8,000 from his mother? He's accused of using her credit card by his sisters, I believe, uh, without her knowledge. Uh, this was a couple of years ago, but... Uh, but why, why are you calling it movement on this issue, though? Just because they've resigned? Just because Steve Clark and Ryan Amato have resigned? Because there's no, there's no... Is there any indication that these lands are actually not going to be developed now? I, don't... The, I believe Doug Ford has said that they will review all lands again. Which could mean he's actually opening up more because he sure. might review older ones that were rejected. Yes. No guarantees of success here. Mm. But... 
listeners, I've said this a bunch, but just in case you're new, I, I'm not I'm the sole host not based out of Toronto. So sometimes I'm a little bit behind on on issues like this one. Um, so is the um, are we happy that these folks have resigned more so than we are disappointed? Like in, in my mind, it's like, oh, well, if they're resigning, then they're never going to sort of face consequences for their poor actions. I guess the resignation and the lack of, I don't know, like a high status job is itself the punishment, but like they're probably just going to go on to other well-paid positions. So are we in any way disappointed about that? Or are we sort of just like happy they've resigned because that indicates some sort of acknowledgement of wrongdoing? I mean, honestly, I think most people involved in the advocacy would prefer to have seen the land in the Greenbelt go back to uh, the Greenbelt versus just them resigning. There's actually a particular parcel of land that uh, that was purchased and then was put up for sale already by a developer once it was opened up, which then Doug Ford had to be like, maybe that one we won't do because they were supposed to build housing on it instead of just making money from flipping it after getting it opened up which is like particularly scuzzy um and my understanding is that there might still be an actual police and rcmp review of this whole experience and so it's possible that other ramifications might come through now the history of politicians being held to account uh is is not the strongest and therefore we'll see um but yeah i mean to be honest like most people at this point seem pretty clear that Doug Ford is the one that really put behind this. You know, Steve Clark, who was the housing manager minister, had been a public servant for the last like 30 years or something. He has a long career and most of his career, most people think that he's been relatively a reasonably good guy. So the fact that he shows up in this one moment and suddenly becomes comically corrupt does seem a little bit like maybe it's the ma- mandate letters that he got from Doug Ford. Maybe it's this, that push coming from the conservative higher ups that was actually causing him to do this way. And it sounds like from the whispers, a lot of caucus, the conservative caucus also sort of feels that way. But yeah, like, I mean, Steve Clark seems like a pretty well liked in the conservative circles of a minister. And so the fact that he stepped down and that that's the outcome of this, I would say, is not exactly what one should consider, you know, I'm not saying justice is the wrong word, but, you know, re- reasonable recompense. Like, if anything, it is Doug Ford or nothing, you know, like, he is the person who said he would not touch the green belt. He is the person who gave mandate letters that indicated that that should not that should be done away with. And his hands and sort of Wait, influence should be done away with the mandate letters. It's like letters that the premier and prime minister give to their uh, people who didn't have to like do these things, basically. Um, so you yeah. got rid of the green belt. I mean, not all of it, obviously, but he clearly supported the the shifts that have happened. You know, so yeah. I mean, are we happy? I don't know. Like, it seems like people think of it or seeing it as, in some ways, like something. But personally, I think, and from what I can read, mostly most people are primarily concerned with the making whole of the greenbelt land once more rather than anything else really yeah no no okay so that makes sense not 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 a big win but a potential step towards some good moves yeah yeah or and and at least a acknowledgement that 
that someone had to take responsibility, <laughs> you know, like, and, and at this point it does sort of prevent Doug Ford from facing the rest of the scrutiny, you know, like it's going to come back as more comes out. Cause it's almost certainly more will come out given the number of photos or like, it is comical. The number of places that some of these other characters in the system show up, like the Mr. X, who was a developer who somehow seemed to know, not me developer, but he was someone who seemed to know about a lot of these changes beforehand. Like he's on the radio saying like things are going to change before the government ever announced it. And he has taken so many selfies with so many politicians. There's like a photo of him with almost every conservative politician and then also Bonnie Crombie. Um, and in case you were wondering, folks who might vote in the liberal leadership, uh, there's a reason why Bonnie Crombie might uh, support opening up the Greenbelt land, which she already did. Uh, it's because she's as cozy with developers as some of these other people are. Um, but anyways, so like there's a lot more that will probably come out of this. And the fact that now it's only Doug Ford left, I think, is an important reality. But also like put the land back in the green belt and stop doing this is the real outcome that I think we're hoping for. Atlanta stop cop city protesters that were labeled by police as domestic terrorists have been getting searched on planes and have had their lives changed by the charges that they'll probably uh, never be tried for. Uh, the Guardian writes, quote, Some have lost jobs or been barred from attending school. Most are living with the psychological impacts of the criminal justice system being wielded against them with little to no publicly released evidence of having committed any crimes. At least 13 of them have posted fundraisers online to help with everything from housing to mental health. And recently, the city of Atlanta announced that it would be reviewing each signature individually on the 104,000 signature petition uh, to force a vote on Cop City. The Intercept reports that such a review is known to lead to the throwing away of a large number of legitimate signatures since they're often rejected for having minor differences that certain parts of the population are more likely to have in their signatures. So this, the domestic terrorism thing is just like, we're calling you domestic terrorists and now like countrywide, right? People are like vigilant for these people who just don't want this thing to be, this, uh, police training facility to be built in this forest that was supposed to be protected yeah when the the bigger update from this week is that 61 of those protesters have been indicted on felony racketeering charges which is the same type of charges that were brought against uh trump for january 6th with oh no i was gonna say yeah this is exactly sort of what my attention was brought to because the acronym that I've been hearing lately is RICO, um, which stands for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations. It's an act. Um, and it was originally developed back in kind of like the latter half of the 20th century um, by prosecutors in New York State, I believe, to be able to criminally indict um mafia and and criminal organizations, basically. So so the these these poor Atlanta these these poor protesters in Atlanta are being are being brought under Rico, which is like you said, what Trump is being brought under. And actually, I think Trump is being brought under them in Atlanta or in Georgia rather as well. So right, so yeah. they're being tried under the exact same act. Yeah, and and really, this should come as 
a huge concern uh, for anyone in the United States worried about the criminalization of protesting. Um, as using this technique allows them to go after a huge selection of people, many of whom were not involved in any arrestable offense actions. You know, the people accused have been charged with a wide range of things, including things as small as raising money for bail funds and being reimbursed for glue that was used in the protest camp. And so, like, they're going after everyone. They've gone so far as to trace the movement back to the death of George Floyd, despite the fact that Cop City Plan didn't even exist then. So they're somehow arguing that this criminal organization has been that that has been trying to stop Cop City began before anyone knew Cop City existed. And that they in in the indictment they include a note that one organizer signing their name as ACAB was, and I quote, an overt act of in furtherance of the conspiracy. Like they are just going at these people to try to make them fear the state. Like, that's it. That's what's happening here. And as uh, Hershawalia noted on Twitter, in response to these charges, what police are doing here is repressing mutual aid and social solidarity and legal defense, which are all ways that we, the people, are able to insulate ourselves from the state, uh, which is therefore a, a threat to status quo. Like, the idea that we can be there for, show up for each other is being included here as part of the problem. And what's truly concerning, one, uh, one more way to sort of highlight how concerning this could be, one of the fears I've seen brought up since these charges is that similar charges could theoretically be used for abortion funds in states where abortion is illegal, because raising money for people to do something that is illegal in your state could be seen as part of a criminal enterprise. And so like, the way that these charges could be used to to totally, totally attack basically all types of protest is really, really terrifying. In last week's interview with Amy Westervelt, one of the things she mentioned was that an upcoming drilled global report will be about how police are criminalizing protest in more and more ways, in similar ways across the world. And so I think something like this will be something really to pay attention to, not not only in the States, but also how it's how it happens here and other places, because the 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 police and prosecutors are learning from each other about how to try to suppress protest more and more and this is something we got to pay attention to and this facility is is uh, an institution that would help them learn from each other even more right that's the design yeah, like, of like cop city itself. international police forces can can reinforce each other and we will take a gorgeous music break and return with the green majority <laughs> Thank you. 
are back with the Green Majority, CIUT 89.5 FM, your local community radio station podcast platform's Harbinger Media Network. In a recent referendum, Ecuadorians have voted to keep their Amazon oil in the ground. So there was, uh, along with the presidential elections, they did a, a referendum about this particular part of protect, protected area in the Amazon. You know, I don't know what I mean necessarily by protected, but... They're keeping their oil in the ground. That's a win. Which doesn't usually happen. It does not. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Panama Canal, which facilitates 6% of the world's maritime trade, is currently jammed because of low water levels. So they need a bunch of rain to get these boats moving. They're moving just very slowly, I think. There's just just a traffic jam there. So it's like, we we cannot cut through the Americas with this amount of water. Very quickly. Um, three new health studies co-published by the government of Pennsylvania and the University of Pittsburgh link fracking with childhood cancer, low birth weight, and asthma. So there are, there are health professionals now calling for the end to fracking. Um, and there, there are counties in Pennsylvania which actually, like, almost everybody lives quite close to a fracking uh, operation. The Trans Mountain Corporation, uh, obviously owned by Canada, <clears throat> is trying to modify part of its pipeline expansion's route and change its method of construction for a small stretch. So it's running into more geographical difficulties. Uh, the Sequempunk First Nation is opposed to the alterations, and uh, the government, of course, bought the project from Kinder Morgan in, uh, for $4.5 billion, and now it's going to cost over $30 billion to build, and the government will probably sell it as a, at a loss once it's complete. Oh, the things I could do with $30 billion. <laughs> By so many air conditioners. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, no, I mean, the the continued plague of, of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Yeah, from what I understand, like you said, Dave, um, the government will most likely sell it at a loss once it's complete. They're already looking for buyers. Yeah, they're they're mm-hmm. looking for purchasers amongst indigenous nations, which feels <laughs> inherently extremely predatory that they're selling them a an, an an asset that will likely well in actuality not not prove itself to be an asset, but it but instead prove to be an expense and a liability. Um, I believe they're still hoping to get this pipeline up and running by something like January twenty twenty four, which I mean clocks a tick in, and January is not that far away, so. I find it hard. Again, I still I continue to find it hard to believe that this project is ever going to actually get up and running and that oil is ever actually going to flow through this pipeline that for all intents and purposes should never have been built to begin with. Yeah. I mean, what's comical about the $30 billion mark is that a couple of weeks ago we were I was chatting with uh, Kat Kadungog about how Uber spent $30 billion or lost $30 billion before it had its first profitable month. And it's just amazing to me what any movement could do with $30 billion. Like, what we could do with $30 billion that wasn't in terms of building real infrastructure. And and instead, we've decided that we wanted a taxi you can hail on your phone and that ignores most regulations and a pipeline that should never pump any oil. (laughs) And yet these are the normal ways we're going to spend $30 billion. You know, while we have a pretty severe crisis in our healthcare and education systems here in Ontario, that could definitely be helped with some money. Now, that's obviously a provincial situation, but... Or like, hell, the billions of dollars we need to be putting into, like, 
disaster and emergency management right now. Like something that everybody across the country can blatantly see and agree we are in desperate, desperate need of. Yeah. Like a $30 billion disaster relief corps would be great and very useful for us all. And yet here we are instead spending it on the Transband pipeline, which maybe eventually might create a pathway for more oil to be burned, which is 100% a thing that we definitely need. So we're nailing it, everybody. Yeah, the $30 billion toxic make work project. Yeah, make it make sense that that they only did because they wanted to say that they cared about creating pipelines. Um, And the last thing before I throw it uh, to more context is that I'm pretty sure that one of the arguments against the Transmine Pipeline was that this particular stretch that they are now saying they need to change was not really going to work. And so the fact that they've moved forward for so long only to now be like, oh, wait, this isn't going to work. And then knowing that the the First Nation that owns that land is against it as well, but you're sort of like getting it so far down the road, you're like, well, now we have to do it. And it's just like everyone was telling you this wasn't going to work for years. And yet here we are. It's nuts. Newfoundland and Labrador is planning to build four windmill projects that will produce either hydrogen or ammonia. Another study on forest carbon offsets, the largest of its kind, has found that they are failing abysmally. Inside Climate News explains that, quote, over the last past few decades, carbon offsets have become increasingly ubiquitous, particularly in in higher-income countries where consumers can assuage their climate guilt by paying a little extra for a flight ticket or a rental car, with the understanding that their additional payment will go towards supporting a tree farm. For example, uh, big high emitting companies like Delta, JetBlue, Disney, General Motors, and Shell have all bought and sold huge amounts of carbon offsets in the name of climate action. It's an attractive business model for companies looking to go green without significant changes in their operations. Purchase some carbon offsets to cancel out your emissions, uh, or at least appear to. So before we were talking about purchasing forest in order to, I don't know if this is the same thing or if they've just expanded to be a larger study, but because 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 the with, with Vera, the problem with those offsets, those are mostly for companies, right? I think. Yeah, probably. I mean, most people buying significant amounts of offsets are companies. It's a completely new study that is that is exploring the same concept, which is yeah. the fraudulent nature of um, forest carbon offsets. Yeah, so it's just more more evidence that forest carbon offsets are not really doing anything. Uh, a bacteria has found that being found that can consume methane. Between the bacteria that can consume methane and those like caterpillars a few years back that were found to be able to consume plastic, it's like we're gonna be fine, guys. <laughs> it's gonna be great. We're just gonna fire a bunch of bacteria into the atmosphere and unleash millions of caterpillars and or billions of caterpillars. Let's be real here, and it's all gonna be okay. Norfolk Southern is back to spending millions of dollars to cut rail regulations in the U.S. six months after its train derailment caused disaster in Ohio. So this is the big the big uh, train explosion in East Palestine, Ohio, where this train company had lobbied to deregulate the industry, and then it caused them a huge crash. And then they waited a few months after the crash just uh, before they began lobbying again to further cut regulations. <laughs> um. 
The city of Hamilton, Ontario, is planning to force landlords to install air conditioners in apartment buildings. And Montreal is adding nine new car-free streets after four years of a large downtown area being already car-free every summer. Coming in first with a question for you, Dave, that initial headline um, that you read, Newfoundland and Labrador are planning to build four windmill projects that will produce either hydrogen or ammonia. Are those the same projects that are then planning on like that's hydrogen to ship overseas? Um, I, there was nothing in what I read about the what they would do with the product. Okay. Okay. Because yeah, something that I remember hearing kind of in, in a bit of a critique, obviously not a critique of the of the concept of, of, of wind energy in Newfoundland. That's a fantastic development. That's what we want to see happening um, in that province. But I did hear a bit of critique, I believe, pertaining to these projects, because again, it's 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 not wind energy that will then power homes and, I don't know, businesses in Newfoundland. It's, it's wind energy to go into producing hydrogen um, to then be shipped overseas, which is like, frustrating because that conversion to hydrogen is is in itself an, an, an unnecessary and annoying step and then further to that it's 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 again for it to go overseas instead of going to to support atlantic provinces but anyway i hope i'm not misspeaking um and then secondarily that again it's like the the thing with hamilton planning to force landlords to install air conditioners i say as i've been whining about not having an ac all day um again this to me is sort of it's it's a bit of a it's 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 a step forward and, and simultaneously a step back. It's the same with the ordinance that we're seeing in, in Vancouver, which is obviously fantastic because it's getting landlords to take responsibility for climate control within their buildings. And it's providing much, much, much needed climate control for um, for lower income residents who who desperately need it during these terrible heat waves that we've seen. That being said, it's unfortunate that it is an investment or a mandated investment in 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 pretty en- like electricity intensive appliances as opposed to something like a heat pump which offers the same climate control and is slightly less it, well is 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 far less intensive from an energy and environment standpoint so uh, a good thing definitely i'm not i'm not maligning the uh installation of air conditioners as a as a climate control and and as a result a climate adapt- ad- adaptive measure but from a mitigation standpoint not as ideal the other thing I, I do want to quickly note is we don't talk about it that much on this show, or at least not recently, but for sometimes I feel like the whenever we aren't doing the really easy things on climate and livability, it makes me feel like a sense of deep sadness. And the complete inability for Canadian cities to not have more car-free streets is just depressing. <laughs> like, it's one of these things where across the board, study after study after study have shown it's better for the businesses, it makes people happier, it creates more space for people to get to congregate and be with each other. It's like universally good things, and the downsides can be mitigated. And yet, we, you know, here in Toronto, we can't even get some of the most obvious pedestrian places to be pedestrian more than one day every month. And, you know, kudos to Montreal for actually leading on a thing and doing better things because like doing better things makes you believe that more better things are possible. So shout out to Montreal. Yeah. Um, so for listeners, I'm based in Ottawa and our dumbass mayor 
came under, thankfully, a bit of fire about a month ago now, because in the summer months, on the weekends, uh, we have the National Capital Commission in in Ottawa, who who's in control of um, our famous Rideau Canal and our kind of our waterways. And they have... Um, jurisdiction over a few parkways as well uh which which are for all intents and purposes pretty pretty major kind of transit hubs um in, or not transit hubs anyway they're they're parkways people drive on them but during the summer months um many of them are shut down on the weekends to allow for active transportation to take place on them um in a way that's that's like well they're they're car they become car free streets people love them they're great and our dumbass mayor I can say dumbass on the radio, I think, um, uh, got on Twitter and filmed a one minute video of him standing on the Queen Elizabeth Parkway in Ottawa, Ontario, that was closed down on the weekend to allow for active transportation being like, I've been here for a minute and I've counted only like 10 people on bikes riding past. Why are we, why are we locking this down to prevent drivers being on this road when only 10 people on bikes are using it? And it's like, screw you, dude, come on. Like it was, it was such a stupid straw man argument. Everybody was so annoyed with him. And it's like, how, I don't know. How can you be angry that people get to like enjoy the sunshine and the beautiful city on their bikes? It's, it was such a weird crotchety thing for him to do. And again, sorry, it's hot. My brain's melting. I was just so mad. And it's just like, why can't we all have Valerie Plant as our mayor? I'm jealous. I'm jealous of Montreal. That's fair. I mean, I will say our mayor kept the pools open for longer, so we could go to the pool right now, not to rub it in further. Well, again, thank gosh Ottawa has the National Capital Commission, which it's like its mandate is just like beautification and making the city a pleasant place and a tourist friendly place. So the swimming areas that they're in charge of, like the ones along the rivers, are remaining open, for instance, versus the city owned ones are closed. These things, these decisions can be made. We will go to a music break and come back with Lauren's interview with... With Alex Cool Fergus, uh, the National Policy Manager of Climate Action Network Canada, where we're going to talk a little bit about the policy landscape going into autumn. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank... Every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, featuring great shows such as Tech Won't Save Us, Press Progress's Sources, and the Forgotten Corner Podcast. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Green Majority. My name's Lauren Latour. I am one of your friendly neighborhood hosts. And joining me today is Alex Cool Fergus. Um, Alex is the new National Policy Manager at Climate Action Network Canada. And she's with us today to talk a little bit about what's going down in the environmental climate policy world uh, as we move back into uh, a busy autumn. Um, 
and Parliament coming back to sit in what? One week? Two weeks out? Two weeks out? Two weeks. Yeah, on the 18th. Beautiful. Okay. All right. We've got our time and kind of right. So Alex, can you just let the listeners know a little bit about who you are, what your sort of like your your history and your experience with with the climate and policy world is? Yeah, sure. So first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. This is really exciting. Um, I will try not to put everyone to sleep by talking too much about policy. But um, what I will say is uh, that my name is Alex, and I've been with Ken for just over a month now. But previous to that, I've always kind of worked in, um, in environmental policy and climate policy spaces, uh, whether as an organizer, um, like both for elections and for just campaigns and movements, um, or, or more professionally, uh, working more closely with with um, local governments and municipal governments across Canada on climate policy, um, but have now kind of come back to this broader or ha- more high level kind of climate policy um, at the federal level. So really excited to uh, to jump into it because this is going to be a really, really busy fall and it's important to pay attention to what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I feel like in like the climate world, we're always saying like, now's the time. This moment is so important. It's just like we're, we have to- We do that. Like- ever acted before I know like that's always the refrain but like if you were to make the case for why this moment is uniquely important or different like sort of like what's the context of the moment we find ourselves in it's like we've got the wildfires that were plaguing Canada and or so-called Canada and still are um we've got like wicked heat waves you and I both live in the in the Ottawa Gatineau region and it's like feels like 37 in September so like what's what's this sort of moment we find ourselves in both like from a climate standpoint and a political one I guess yeah, I mean, I think that from a climate standpoint, I don't have to tell anyone anything. I think everyone in so-called Canada has experienced the heat waves, the floods, the tornadoes, the high winds, the forest fires, the smokes, like name it. Um, we've been dealing with it this this summer. And so um, I think that as parliamentarians return to, to Ottawa um, in the next couple of weeks, climate is definitely going to be top of mind for everyone just because we've all experienced it in a way that I think previously it had been easier to avoid. Um, So I don't think that, I think that there's actually like an interesting, we're in an interesting moment where there is like a baseline understanding of climate impacts. And people are talking a lot about adaptation and not just on the left, also on the right. So you'll hear the conservatives talking about things like um, needing more firefighters and more people to respond to um, crises. And I think that that's a really interesting place for us to be because it's no longer like, is it happening or not? No one's having that conversation anymore. Um, obviously, there are some you know people um, who who are questioning you know how forest fires and start are started and all that. But that's really a very very fringe part of um, of the public debate that's actually happening at the federal level. And so I don't think we need to do much work on convincing people that it's here. Um, I think we need to do a lot more work on convincing people that it's not too late um, to act to mitigate climate. And that's that's the real issue at hand right now, because um, as we as we head into you know the the debates and like the conversations and the legislative process um, in Parliament, there are a couple of different interesting policy pieces that have been proposed or that are um, on the docket that have a really interesting potential to completely change the, you know, Canada's emissions profile. But if we get them wrong, we're really, really, really missing out on an opportunity because um, I think that anyone who observes the federal landscape knows there's going to be an election 
in the next couple of months. So we don't know exactly when it's going to be, if it's going to be in six months, in a year, but we know that this, you know, we're, we're kind of hitting the end um, uh, of, of this, this parliament. Um, and so there, there's an opportunity to make a lot of changes now or potentially not get them in the future if, um, you know, if Pierre Polyev's conservatives win uh, the next federal election. Yeah, because if if my assumption is correct, um, or not my assumption, but my understanding is correct, is that like like you said, there there maybe isn't as much explicit climate denial out of the right as there previously was, but the conservatives still aren't really necessarily putting forward or or even supporting climate policy the way the way we would theoretically need a party to were they to come into governing power, right? Absolutely. And I don't want to be misinterpreted. Um, (laughs) I'm not saying that they're all in on climate policy. But what I'm saying is that we're at an interesting point where the question isn't like, do we need to do something? The question is, are we going to do something that's meaningful and that's actually going to bring change? I mean, I think that if anyone who reads the news now, um, and if you do, props, because it is harder and harder to do. Um, I you know, obviously the, the, there's a lot of debate about affordability and about the housing crisis. And I think that those are two very, very real issues um, that are really worth looking at. I guess a concern of mine is that um, people aren't necessarily making the link between housing crisis, affordability, and climate. Um, and I think that there are tons of links that should be made. And I'm not really clear on why the current government is not making those links as as clearly as I think that they could be. Um, but when we're talking about affordability, you know, energy costs is, is massive, whether that be the energy to power your car or to heat or cool your home. Um, and these are things that have real climate, you know, climate solutions tend to reduce the price of energy. Um, and so I'm not sure why we're not you know, focusing more, why the government isn't focusing more on, on those issues. Same for the, for, for housing. Um, obviously, I mean, I'm in Gatineau, Quebec. Um, we had a tornado five years ago, wiped out a whole bunch of low-income housing. That housing was rebuilt, but it was rebuilt and sold or, or, or rented out at a much, much, much higher price. Like that has contributed in a very real way to the housing crisis in my community. So um, you know, I think that there have to be links, better links made between those two really um, clear and concrete issues that affect Canadians on a day-to-day level and that are really top of mind for Canadians right now when we look at, you know, all sorts of polls um, across Canada. And we need to make the links between those and climate um, in a way that's also real for people to understand. Like, for example, if you get a heat pump and you put it in, you're going to be saving money, Um on, on energy in the summer and in the winter, and you're doing the right thing for climate. So I think that there have, there have to be a lot um, kind of more holistic approaches to, to tackling um, mitigation and adaptation. Yeah. Is, um, is that, like you said, the government isn't maybe doing a super good job of, of drawing those ties. I mean, like we heard all about how the environment and the economy go hand in hand back in the McKenna days, but do you think, um, is is the government's sort of like failure to draw those connections around like affordability and like housing justice and stuff like that with climate is is that a is that a government problem or is that maybe can could the climate movement be doing a better job of drawing those connections ourselves it is it is definitely a both end problem we we all need to be talking about these things um as 
as being connected to one another. And I think that if we don't, we risk losing that that terrain to um, you know right wing populists uh, and the Conservative Party of Canada. Scary stuff. <laughs> uh, okay, so moving on, you mentioned um, there were sort of some, we were talking about like some key sort of policies or, or regulations or, or pieces of legislation that are sort of like, I don't know, this sounds dramatic, but kind of like hanging in the balance right now. And because there is sort of the prospect of an election on the horizon, it sort of feels like we're in a bit of a I, I hate that we're going into a parliamentary period and it already feels like crunch time, but it does already feel like crunch time for some of these things. So so what are some of those policies or, or pieces of legislation that are kind of hot button issues right now for us? Yeah, so it's, this is the what keeps me up at night conversation. Um, well, there are a couple of them. One of them that is a little bit, well, two of them I, I would start with that are a little bit more advanced. One of them is the Sustainable Jobs Act, um, which was, you know, a draft regulation was released uh, in the spring or so, no, in the summer. Um, you know, sustainable jobs, for those of you who've been listening along for a couple of years, used to be known as the Just Transition. Um, there's been a little word change. I'm going to call it sustainable jobs because that's what the federal government calls it. And essentially, this is um, a piece of legislation that is kind of going through reviews right now. So everyone is allowed to um, submit reviews. Um, I know that, that the opposition parties are, are suggesting some amendments and some changes, um, and Canada's been working closely with them, um, as well as with labor groups um, and, and obviously the, the climate movement to make sure that we really are developing a strategy um, and that there is associated funding so that, you know, young people, people who are looking to requalify um, can, you know, can have a seat at the table um, when it comes to, to, you know, the transition that our economy needs to go through. So that is something that, you know, that a lot of folks are, are looking at and that we're working on. Um, the other piece of legislation that is is ongoing uh, are the clean electricity regulations. And so the draft regulations just came out um, in August. And, you know, I would say it's a, it's a mixed bag. There's some, there are some good pieces there. Like there's some interesting targets, um, which to be fair, we already knew about. Um, there are some issues with allowing for, for certain fossil fuels to be considered electricity and to be, to continue to be used up into 2035, which is when the, um, the regulations you know, start, start taking Start, start coming into effect, come into effect rather. Um, and so. Is, yeah. is that a reference to um, like using natural gas uh, and it's yes. like be a hydrogen and, and and considering it to be a renewable fuel source or renewable it's not energy? Even just, it's not even just hydrogen. Like it, it's possible through the clean electricity regulations as they are drafted right now um, to, to use natural gas at peak times. Um it's also possible for governments such as like the government of Ontario to continue deploying natural gas um, facilities right now, which is obviously a lock-in, um, which means that we're building this infrastructure that that unless we want to, you know, collectively lose a lot of money um, by taking them offline, like they're going to be continued well into the future and well beyond when you know, science has been telling us we need to stop using fossil fuels to generate electricity. So those are concerning pieces um, of the regulation. And I know that there are lots of groups um, who are, are working on this very closely. Um, 
and working closely with the government on it as well to make sure that the the regulations are not watered down by um you know by the fossil fuel industry and their lobbyists. So there is a day of action coming up um later in in the month um and in October and I know that there are lots of meetings happening um with different government officials to make sure that that those two pieces of legislation that the sustainable jobs act and that the clean electricity regulations um bring us to a more just future and uh, and a safer future for all um the the third piece of legislation that I that I would say really does keep me up at night and I think that there is an absolute urgency for everyone listening right now to to pick up their phone and call their MP's office about um, is the emissions cap. And so the emissions cap is something that had been promised by the Liberal government for years and years. Um, it's been delayed time after time, and it appears that it's going to be actually like the, that the draft emissions cap regulations are going to be released um, sometime this fall. Um, and we are very much hoping that that is the case, um, because I think that, you know, if, if these if the emissions cap is not adopted before the next federal election, it's not going to happen. Um, so so this is something that really needs to be you know, adopted, like not just the draft. We need to have like a real emissions cap implemented across the board as soon as possible. Um, to to start reducing emissions from the oil and gas sector, which have historically emitted way more than their fair share of emissions, and um, and who are now scrambling to um, to make sure that this emissions cap is not implemented. Um, we've seen the Pathways Alliance, which is essentially the front group for all of these oil and gas companies, um, doing tons and tons of lobbying on this very question. They've been doing lots of advertising. You may have seen it. It looks super very cute, very slick. They're saying that they're part of the solution. They are absolutely not part of the solution. Um, and, and so we see that they're concerned um, about, about this piece of legislation in particular. And I say whenever the oil and gas industry is concerned about a piece of legislation, it's probably um, something worth looking into and something worth mobilizing around, even though it is a very, very wonkish um, concept and it's kind of hard to sell to the greater public. Yeah. So like, that's like, it is a little bit wonkish. Can you, I mean, the, the term itself feels a little bit self-explanatory, but like for somebody who's maybe never heard the term emissions cap before, can you like break it down and just like really simplify it for folks? Essentially the goal is that we are, you know, there's a target for, for Canada's oil and gas industry sector to, you know, to reduce their emissions by a certain amount by 2030 and then by 2050. And in order to meet that target, the government has always said that they're not trying to reduce production. They're trying to reduce emissions, like the emissions intensity of the oil and gas sector. And so essentially what this cap does is, you know, the government says, okay, we're going to cut, like you cannot produce more emissions than whatever you're producing right now. And then we are going to lower it by a certain amount every year. Right. In a really small nutshell, that is what, the emissions cap is, um, and there's there's been more and more research coming out, you know, recently about how this is actually a, like an economically sound policy mm -hmm. for the oil and gas sector because there's lots of wastage. Um, for example, methane, like you know, methane emissions are are huge. Um, you know, from whether that's natural gas or whether that's oil, um, 
And so by just capturing that natural gas and either converting it into CO2 or breaking it down in other ways, you're able to, you know, the oil and gas sector is able to reduce their emissions quite significantly because it's such a potent um, greenhouse gas emitting uh, molecule. And so by using it and, and capturing it and then potentially even selling it to, to people as natural gas, like the oil and gas sector is, is actually making more money. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm just not really convinced when they say that they want to be part of the solution, um, you know, on, on climate change. And then they oppose things that could potentially make them a lot more competitive, um, a little bit perversely on, on the global market. Yeah. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. No, no, it's like, that's the thing. It exposes them for the bad faith actors that they are 100%. So we only have a couple more minutes with you. Can you just explain, because like you, you kind of, you understand the legislative process more than the average listener. What happens to something like the emissions cap regulation if an election were to be called in the spring and it weren't sort of like, and it wasn't passed in time, like, like passed in sort of the general sense, like, does it just dissolve? Does it disappear? What what yeah. happens to a piece of re- to a, to a, to a regulation if it doesn't get through by the end of the term? So I mean, if it hasn't been proposed, like if there's no draft regulation at all, it, it would just it wouldn't happen. It would just kind of die there. Right. Um, and and if there is a draft, again, like if, if the actual act, you know, putting the the cap into place does not pass in time then that means that it's just not happening unless, you know, unless the liberals or the NDP or the Greens win government. Um, You know, I I know that there is some talk about the, the, you know, some liberal strategists using the emissions cap as like a kind of keystone piece of their next um, platform or like on their next climate platform and kind of holding it up um, as like the carrot so that people want to vote for them. People who are climate minded vote for them. To which I would say, what about you actually do it now, you implement it, a stringent emissions cap, you prove to people who are, you know, care about climate issues that you are serious about doing it and that you're actually going to get the job done and then hold up the carrot saying, hey, if you vote for the Conservative Party, they're going to scrap it. So we already have this thing and we're, they're going to take it away, um, you know, putting it out there there are any strategists listening potentially that would be an interesting way of approaching it um and also we would kind of help avoid a little bit of cynicism that some people have towards the liberal party yeah why not try earning our trust you know as opposed to just like continuously promising and kicking things down the line because frankly at this point if somebody were to try to use if the liberals were to try to use the emissions cap as a way to win my vote i feel like i'd turn around and be like hey that what happened to electoral reform i forget right Exactly. Like exactly. It's, it's really hard to trust a party that I like you feel burned. You know what I mean? I f- yeah. Anyway. So and, and we it's not like, go- you know, anyway. Yeah. Go yeah. Ahead. Go ahead. Before I let you go, you mentioned really quickly or briefly at one point you were like, uh, if you are still even reading news, like kudos to you. Where where do you get your news from as somebody who cares about climate, who's involved in in the policy and politics world? What are your news sources that you turn to on a regular basis? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, actually, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And so I kind of get recommended podcasts from my friends and um, and then just listen along and then kind of fall into like this black hole of I'm just listening to all the podcasts. 
Um, but I've also been downloading the apps of news sources that I find interesting. So, you know, CBC, um, I, 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 I listen to a lot of Quebec media as well. So the Devoir and Radio Canada. Um, yeah, I know it's really, really, really hard for media uh, these days in Canada and, uh, you know, solidarity to them because I know that lots of them are continuing to do amazing work and, and really diving into these issues with a really critical eye. Um, and I just hope that we're able to figure out a way of getting that information into people's hands because it's uh, it is really challenging. Yeah, at this point, it's 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 post media a lot of the time. And, and even then, it's the way it's been sort of like restricted on social media is brutal. Anyway, I got to let you go. Thank you so much for your time today, Alex. Really appreciate it. Again, this has been Alex Cool Fergus, uh, the National Policy Manager with Climate Action Network Canada. And uh, you've been listening to me, Lauren, in conversation with her for the last few minutes. So thanks so much for joining us, Alex. We'll hope to have thanks you back. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Bye. All right. Bye.